Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Thursday, uh, February 22nd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the role of the International Court of Justice in the ongoing Palestinian crisis. Somalia and Turkey have signed a security agreement. Burkina Faso represents a new political trend in Africa among the alliance of Sahel states. And Ghana features our protesting peer state system. In the second and third hour, we continue our African American History Month series with a focus on Malcolm X uh, during uh, 1964. We'll present uh, two rare archival audio files of interviews with Malcolm X on a radio station in Philadelphia and another one in New York City. These and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Le Amazon d'Afrique, and this is from an album entitled Republic Amazon. Let's listen in.
In other news, speaking to two thousands of youth, the transitional president of Burkina Faso urges the young people to stay calm and overcome the fear and panic propagated by certain factions regarding Burkina Faso's exit from ECOWAS. The transitional president of Burkina Faso, Ibrahim Traore, stated that the nation is on the path to independence across all aspects, particularly after its withdrawal from the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. Speaking to thousands of youth, Traore urged the youth to remain calm and overcome the fear. He emphasized uh, that uh, individuals uh, betraying their homeland for imperialism will face appropriate consequences, highlighting the absence of any sympathy for traitors. Additionally, Traore affirmed Burkina Faso's capability to produce various goods and announced a ban on importing foodstuffs from countries that have restricted the export of their products to Ouagadougou. In a different context, he pledged to provide the Burkinaabe army, quote, with additional equipment in the coming days to boast its firepower against terrorists, unquote. And uh, finally, in the West African state of Ghana, uh, teachers' unions nationwide are expressing mounting frustration with the Akufu Aju Burmia led government failure to fulfill the two tier pension obligations dating back to April 2023. <clears throat> Reports indicate that the outstanding amounts owed to these unions have reached into the millions of Ghanaian CDs. Despite deductions carried out by the controller and accountants general department, Sources within the education sector disclose that these funds have not been transferred uh, to the Ghana Education Service Occupation Pension Scheme. The government's attempt to secure a bailout from the International Monetary Fund has triggered financial repercussions for organized labor. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal.
me what that you see Margins in the fields of Concord Looks like handsome Johnny with his flintlock in his hand Marching to the Concord War Hey, marching to the Concord War Tell me what's that you see Marching to the fields of Dunkirk Looks like handsome Johnny With a carbine in his hand Marching to the Dunkirk War Hey, marching to the Dunkirk War
tell me what's that you see? Margin to the fields of Concord. Looks like handsome Johnny with his flint lock in his hand. Marching to the Concord War. Hey, marching to the Concord War. Look yonder, tell me what's that you see Marching to the field of Dunkirk Looks like handsome Johnny with a carbine in his hand Marching to the Dunkirk War Hey, marching to the Dunkirk War Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for uh, this Thursday, uh, February 22nd, uh, 2024. And uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And yesterday uh, represented the 59th anniversary of the martyrdom of Malcolm X, El Hajj Malik Shabazz, uh, who was assassinated on February 21st of 1965 in New York City. And uh, right now we want to play an interview, a rare archival audio file uh, featuring um, Malcolm X uh, being interviewed by Joe Rainey on WDAS in Philadelphia on June 4th of 1964, uh, just uh, upon his return uh, from his second trip to the African continent. The first, of course, was in 1959. This was his second trip and the first one of 1964 he went back uh, the following month uh, to africa and west asia let's listen uh, to uh, this report to unite the people of the united states with the african people of african descent in the west indies the people of african descent in latin america and in south or rather central america and south america but when we realize the power this and we have here numerically 
then uh, and we uh, study the uh, Nkrumah doctrine of Pan-Africanism, which means uh, uh, all the good that they do is not only for the Africans at home, but also for the Africans abroad, uh, we can see that our philosophical migration, though we stay here in the Western Hemisphere physically, our philosophical, our cultural, our psychological migration back to Africa, meaning mean we, which means we establish our spiritual ties with Africa, our cultural ties with Africa, while just the uh, erecting, the uh, establishing of, these, of this type of bridge, this, this type of communication, and this type of bond will be uh, uh, very, very helpful in enabling the people of African descent here in the United States to gain probably one of the most uh, one of the strongest political, economic, and social positions that has ever been occupied by a strange people in a strange land since the beginning of the world. How is Malcolm X? Well, over in Lebanon in, at the university, at the American University of Beirut, uh, and uh, rather near the American University of Beirut, and some students from the Sudan uh, made it possible for me to give a lecture at the Sudanese Cultural which was attended by most of the and the faculty from the American uh, uh, University of Beirut. And at this lecture, it gave me my first chance to really feel the pulse of what the African reaction is like when they are given a, a true picture of the plight of the Afro-American. And uh, the, there was uh, one white American stood up and tried to defend America in a sense, you know, after I had described our plight which he couldn't defend it. And he looked so bad trying to that after he sat down, he held his head. During the rest of the meeting, he sat there with his head down, with shame, with disgrace. And any time, and I learned, and also a Negro, American Negro girl, she stood up too and tried to defend uh, America. And I, I felt sorry for her, and I didn't even have to blast her because there happened to be another American Negro in the audience who stood up and sat her down. Uh, but... Good. So I, I found that anywhere I went, if someone tried to attack me for being very blunt and frank and vocal about our problems, there was always someone in the audience ready to put them down. And um, I called my wife from Cairo, and she told me that uh, it was reported, at least in New York, by the press, that my lecture in Beirut had caused a riot among the students, which was uh, the boldest lie, probably. One of the boldest lies, they've told so many, that have ever been told in this country by anyone. Because the only, the only riotous uh, situation that took place was them crowding around afterwards, you know, to thank me for letting them know what was really going on over here. And when I was in uh, Nigeria, I spoke at the University of Ibadan, uh, which is a, a beautiful African uh, 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 school in Nigeria. And I did the same thing. I indicted America, really, uh, by just describing the real plight of the black people in this country. And after I had given this lecture, uh, a Negro stood up uh, uh, from, uh, from the Caribbean area here and tried again to attack me. The students came up on the speaker stand, took the microphone away from him, ran him not only off the stand, ran him off, out of the hall, and off the campus and would have lynched him had not Essien Udom, the one who went to school in this country and wrote the book Black Nationalism, come to his rescue. And I cite this to show you that any time the African 
or the Asian or the Latin American is given a true description of the hell and the torture that black people face in America, why it is impossible for anyone to stand up and defend America without running the risk of being lynched abroad. So these are things that I think are good to know, and I cite them very bluntly so that our people in this country will realize that we shouldn't be fighting our struggle for independence and, and for the liberation of our people as if we're the underdogs. Everybody on this earth is on our side who has a true understanding and knowledge of, of the nature of the plight or the struggle that we're, that we're facing. Another thing I noticed when I was in, uh, at the, in Mecca, in Arabia, during the Hajj, during the pilgrimage, and uh, it was my stay in, uh, uh, in Arabia. I stayed in Arabia so long that originally I had intended to uh, leave Mecca and go back to Cairo, to Khartoum, and visit Kenya, Tanganyika, Zanzibar, and Uganda before going to West Africa. But when I got to Arabia, I, I was uh, informed by Mohammed Faisal, the son of Prince Faisal, who is the ruler of Arabia, that I was to be the state, a state guest. So that during the entire 12 days that I was in Arabia, I was the guest of the Arabian ruler who uh, placed, uh, uh, who put me in a suite at the Jeddah Palace Hotel, the most beautiful place I've ever been, and gave him, put a car at my disposal with a chauffeur and a mu'alim, uh, a religious guide, who then, uh, uh, and also made it possible for me to commute back and forth between Jeddah and Mecca and Medina and the other holy cities in Arabia at, almost at will. And it was uh, the nature of my stay in Arabia that uh, was prolonged that made it imperative that I cancel my entire East African journey and go on into West Africa. And I, I might point out that some of the, I learned more about the religion of Islam, the orthodox religion of Islam, while I was in Arabia than I ever dreamt. And it did have a great uh, influence on much of my thinking today. Uh, and I also was able to see while I was there uh, why Islam has been more effective in establishing brotherhood among, uh, man, in, among mankind than, than any other religion. And what actually had sent me to Mecca was uh, one of the messenger's sons, Minister Wallace Muhammad, the brother who used to be the minister right here in Philadelphia. He had told me back in February of 1963 of the importance of the Muslims in the Muslim movement getting a better understanding of the orthodox religion of Islam, the, getting a better spiritual understanding of the religion of Islam as it is actually practiced in the Muslim world. And at that time, I contended with him. I wasn't receptive to what he was saying because there were other things that he said that wherein I thought he was wrong. But I uh, lived uh, to see that everything he told me at that time was 1,000% true. And the best advice anybody ever gave me was the advice he gave me when he encouraged me to make the trip to the holy city of Mecca. And the, as I say, the religious experience itself gave me a, a broader approach, I think. I think it broadened my scope. One of the things, one of the things that shocked me when I got to Mecca, I saw white people in Mecca. I had always been taught that they didn't have white people over there, and I believe that because you can't go by anything other than what you're taught if you've never been taught otherwise. But I saw, but the thing about these white people, they weren't white like you find white people in this country. They were white in color, but their attitude was different. I noticed that during the uh, religious pilgrimage, uh, uh, there were occasions and many occasions 
where I was uh, eating with eating from the same plate with white with people who in this country would be considered white. Their eyes were blue, their hair was blonde, their skin was white, but their attitude was different. And I, I wondered about this, and I studied it very closely, because the the Afro-American, whether he realizes it or not, whatever experience he finds himself in, usually the yardstick that he uses to measure it is the the attitude of racism. We are the victims of racism to su such extent. So the, the average one of us, wherever we go, we have our feeler out to find out what is, what's the score here. And usually we want to know, is this man really a brother or is he just pretending? And I studied and I noticed that people of all complexions were getting along in unity and harmony from the uh, whitest white person to the blackest black person. And uh, I tried to come to some conclusion as to what would make a person uh, who looked white here in the Muslim world be so much different from the man that is white here in the Western world that I just left. And I could see that because this particular person had accepted Allah, which means one God, or the chain reaction or logical conclusion means also that he has to accept all people on this earth as one people or belong to one human family. By accepting Allah or one God, one has to accept the oneness of the human family. And when one accepts the oneness of the human family, then one doesn't, uh, one realizes rather that uh, the various complexions are, all the are only the varying degrees uh, of people and how they look that it takes to make up this human family. And by uh, looking upon all as the same, you, the, the people who appear to be white don't regard themselves as white in the same way that the white man in this country does. And I could see then that white is more of an attitude than it is a color. And the white man in this country is distinguishable, distinguishable from whites over there by his attitude. His attitude. When the white man in this country says he's white, he means something much different from the white man over there who says he's white. When that man over there says he's white, he means uh, that his skin happens to be lighter uh, than the skin of the others, and that's all. But when the white man in America says he's white, if you listen to the tone of his voice, he's saying, I'm the boss. I'm the best one. I'm the one who's on top. He's, he's bragging about the color of his skin. Whereas when a man over there tells you he's white, this is just a, uh, an incidental adjective that he uses to describe uh, his complexion, but it has nothing to do with his position. It has nothing to do with his... Uh, 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 brain uh, content or anything of that sort. And I did feel that if the religion of Islam could uh, do for those white people over there, or so-called white people over there, if it, could, if it could remove the white from their mind as it has, perhaps if the white man here in America would study the religion of Islam and get a better understanding of it in time, maybe he could change his racist attitude and save himself from the inevitable destruction that his country must meet as long as this uh, attitude of racism prevails here in America. And America has the most deeply ingrained uh, attitude of racism that exists among in, in any country anywhere else on this earth. Including South Africa. In, worse than South Africa because the South Africans are at least gentlemen enough to say that they are racist. They preach segregation and practice segregation. But these Americans are such hypocrites. They have the audacity to say they're preaching uh, democracy while they're actual, actually practicing hypocrisy. They preach integration and practice segregation. So I think when you look all over this earth, 
the South Africans should uh, be worthy of much more respect than the Americans because at least the South Africans practice what they preach while the Americans preach one thing and practice another thing. I'm going to open the phones to you now as we move along with the program and give you an opportunity to ask questions and make comments to the guests. Trinity 81023 or Trinity 81024, those are the numbers to call. I'm going to ask you to make one call, one call tonight, please, and two minutes only for any caller. One call in two minutes. The segment of the program brought to you by... And trying to uh, become more acceptable in the eyes of uh, our, our president. I would also like to say this, that uh, he's the first of our leaders whom I've heard mention anything at all about the stand of the Afro-Americans in other parts of the world in relation to our position. The Afro-American within the United States has taken the defenses and appears to have rejected the help of his brethren in other countries, for example, Cuba, Brazil, and uh, even in Ghana, where they've labeled Nkrumah as uh, a combination of the devil and uh, an atheist. So I would just like to say in conclusion that uh, Brother Malcolm, uh, keep up the good work. See if you can get through to some of the other leaders. Thank you. Can I make a quick comment on something? Uh, he, when he said that they try and make uh, Nkrumah look like a combination between a devil and an atheist, I think that's what he said. Uh, I, I spoke with Nkrumah, President Nkrumah, for an hour. And uh, the, the last thing that he said to me uh, when I was going out the door was, May God bless you. Now, I don't know what kind of atheist would use such expression. I found the man to be a very religious man. Joe Rainey. Yes. Saladin Abdul Malik. Yes. I want to express great thanks to having Governor on your program. And I say that he has expressed himself tonight better than ever before in the past than I've ever heard him. And I have just two or three questions that I think that might be important. Well, you've got two people. minutes now. Can you get three questions in in two minutes? Yeah, I'll try my best. I'm timing myself. Uh, what suggestions uh, does he make to Negro leaders uh, to bring about the unity which will be necessary to bring our fight to the forefront? And the next one is, uh, <clears throat> what is his new outlook and uh, what is his personal intention as a Muslim uh, in regards to other Muslims here in the United States. And the third question is that in listening to him, I was led to believe that he might have been misled or misguided in some respect in the past, and it appears that he has made uh, new uh, ideas since he made this trip overseas to uh, Mecca and Africa. And I thank you, and this is the thing I'd like to know when Allah bless him. Well, the, the uh, Afro-American leaders in this country first have to realize, not only as individuals, but, as, but also as organizations, that there is no one uh, man wise enough or with a vast amount enough knowledge to really see the problem in its entirety as it actually is. There's no one organization uh, with a scope broad enough the problem in its entirety as it actually is. And I think that when it is realized that there that it that it'll take more than individuals to solve the problem, then this combination of individuals will get together and discuss it more objectively 
not through the eyes of their organizations, but as the problem actually is, and it will be easier to uh, submerge their differences then and, try and reach some kind of solution. I frankly believe, and I've made this mistake, from having to represent an organization and therefore looking at the problem through the eyes of an organization, I've made the mistake of uh, giving a call to Negro leaders to unite, and then, have, then I would have to uh, qualify it by saying we will unite with them as long as uh, we're not asked to compromise our religious principles. Well, this right here uh, eliminates chances of unity. The, the problem is too big for one organization. And if I say to some Negroes, let's unite, and we can do it, but if it uh, goes beyond the scope or the principles of our organization, then I'm more interested in the organization than I am in a solution to the problem. If you come to me with a solution and you prove to me that it is a solution, I shouldn't care what my organization represents if I'm really looking for a solution to the problem. So most Negro organizations, are interested in solutions only as long as the solution will enhance the prestige of their particular organization or their particular self. So what we have to do is see the see the, the complexity of this problem and the vastness of it. And then we will realize that we are going to have to forget some of these so-called organizational principles uh, and organizational aims and objectives and realize that the real principle and the real aim and the real objective is a solution to the problem. Everything else can be put right down the drain. If you've got some principles that won't help us to solve this problem, then you have the wrong principles. And this is, this is uh, uh, my reaction from having traveled abroad, and I just think that it broadened my scope. And I also realized that as a representative of a religious organization in the past, uh, how organizational approaches usually are so narrow that it's impossible to see the problem or enough of the problem to come up with an answer that will cover the whole thing and enable us to reach a solution. And what is my, as far as my attitude toward uh, other Muslim groups is concerned, uh, when I was in, uh, as I said earlier, when I was in uh, on the religious pilgrimage, the Hajj, to Mecca, one of the things that uh, I was standing on the steps uh, in Mecca, on the, on the steps of the house where I was staying in Mecca one day, and a member of the Turkish parliament uh, who had led the uh, Turkish Muslims to Mecca, uh, was in, we were in conversation together, and he pointed out, it was actually he who pointed out, he's a very learned man, that, uh, the, that this particular area, Mecca, during the Hajj season would be an anthropologist's uh, paradise because you have an opportunity to see every specimen of humanity. And it's probably the only time in history and the only spot on earth where you can see every specimen of humanity represented at the same time, from the whitest white to the blackest black. Every culture is represented there. And uh, realizing that Islam is a religion that brings all these people together and enables them to work in harmony and unity toward one common objective because they believe in one God, I frankly believe that if all of the people in this country were able to uh, broaden their scope <laughs> to that level, it would be possible to formulate some kind of working unity that would enable us to see broad enough to get some kind of solutions to our problem, religiously, politically, economically, socially, academically, intellectually, and otherwise. And I should point out, too, that uh, one of the things that where he says I, that I think I was misled in the past, yes, I must admit that I was, uh, and I probably never would have said this 
before making the pilgrimage because when you separate from an organization, it's just like a man separating from his wife. At first, the separation is physical, but it's not really psychological. You separate from her, and though you are separated, you still have some strong feelings and thoughts about her, so uh, you're, not, you're still subjective whenever you think about it. But after you have been separated physically for long enough, then the, the physical separation also evolves to a psychological separation. And it's the same when a person separates from an organization, whether it's religious, political, fraternal, or otherwise. At first, it's the physical separation. But after that separation has existed for a while, it becomes a psychological separation, and you, re you retain your objectivity, your ability to be objective. And it was this uh, I think that this is probably one of the effects that uh, the amount of time that has passed since I separated from the organization to which I formerly belong, plus the, the distance that I traveled abroad trying to learn more about the religion of Islam, it, it was possible then for me to look back at some of the religious conclusions that I had come to prior to making this journey, and I found that many of my conclusions were either incorrect and in many cases immature, and in other cases, they were, they were right. But by and large, I think that my entire outlook, religiously, politically, economically, socially, and even racially, is much different than it was before I went abroad. Show rating. Mrs. White? Yes, Mrs. White. Okay. I would like to ask a question. I question here. I think that this Malcolm F. As he puts it, think so much of these other countries he talks about. I don't think he will be happy in any other country but one of them. And why, if he is so against, or I presume he was born in this terrible country, because it's a terrible country, America, why don't he leave it? And as far as the wife being so anxious, as he has said, in shaking hands for the negatives in the other countries, I would like to tell him I shake hands with Negroes because when I did, there were no differences in our color. The person himself. But I also would shake hands with everyone because of color. What is his excuse? Thank you. Uh, if I uh, understood her correctly, she was implying. Uh, as to why I would think that this country, this good country, as she described it, is so bad, and at the same time, why don't I leave? Uh, it's easy for me to leave, and I doubt that there's any country on the African continent uh, on which, in which I couldn't live other than perhaps South Africa, and I frankly believe I could live there. Uh, I could live there because I would stir up our people there and try and bring about a change, and not nonviolently. Uh, anytime you constitutes comprise 11 million of the people and you only got 2 million people who are a minority ruling you, it's only because you have the wrong philosophy. So uh, uh, insofar as going someplace else and living someplace else, uh, that's very easy for me to do. But at the same time, I have to take into consideration that our people collectively have a problem here. And uh, me being able to go someplace and live comfortably and happily I don't think that I could ever do it. My mind couldn't rest as long as I knew that our people were still in this country being bitten by police dogs and uh, uh, brutalized by the clubs of police and washed down the sewer uh, by the fire hoses of the people in this good country, as she calls it. So 
the is that when I was in Accra, I met many Afro-Americans who were over there who had been very strong fighters while they were in this country. And uh, they had escaped. They, they went over there as expatriates, as exiles. And they were living very happy. They were some of the most progressive people here. They're over there now in Ghana living happy. So I actually uh, insulted them because uh, I was asking them, how could they know that our people in this country are catching so much hell? And they live over there like the battle is over. Well, it struck their conscience. It struck their conscience. And having struck their conscience, they were able to see that the people from South Africa who lived in Ghana had formed Freedom Fighters headquarters. And the people in, from Angola who lived in Ghana had formed Freedom Fighters headquarters. So, uh, having stirred them up, I think you'll be reading soon where the Afro-American over there in all of those countries is also setting up headquarters of Afro-American freedom fighters who are becoming interested, as interested, as fighting for the freedom and the liberation of the blacks in this country who are being colonized by the American white man. The same as the blacks in, in South Africa are colonized by that white man and the blacks in Angola are, are, are also colonized by that white man. So the problem will be solved as soon as we wake up and realize that we catch as much hell here as we catch it abroad. And as long as one person, one black person is catching hell, all of us are catching hell. And just for one to escape and go to another country doesn't solve the problem. All of us have to have our problem solved or the problem has not been solved for anyone. Joe Rainey. Uh, hello, Mr. Rainey. This is Quitman uh, X. Yes, Quitman X. Um, I would like to refer my remarks to the public in general and you. Um, uh, I recall some time ago that um, I had heard a minister who during that time was referred to as Malcolm X. One of the times when I had first come into the nation of Islam, was he used to be very convincing and convincing of the teaching of the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, whom I believed in then and I still believe in. Now, I heard uh, Malcolm Little tonight make a speech about no organization and no man in the United States has brought enough in scope and mind to uh, know our problems. Now, and so much as I know that uh, Elijah Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and he professed to be a Muslim. Now, he professed, that is, you understand? Now, I would like to know what is he saying. Is he saying that God himself is not broad enough in scope, or he got a better plan than God Almighty? Of course, I'm not talking to him, as I don't talk to traders anyway. You see what I mean? But, um... I would like to know, when did he turn a hypocrite? Was it then when he was so confessing, or is it now? Does he want me to ask? Yeah. Um, uh, here's a, a person who is reflecting the same thing that I'm glad I escaped from. It's true. There's nobody in America who has ever been able to represent the black Muslim movement and Mr. Muhammad in the manner that I had. In fact, I think most objective students of that organization will agree that had I uh, not represented it as religiously and sincerely as I did, it probably would still remain unheard of today. So instead of this brother, who was probably well-meaning but guided by his own lack of knowledge and understanding, 
uh, being ignorant enough to jump on a public microphone and challenge me, he should have asked himself, what was it that caused me to turn? I gave him a hint a little while ago when I said that a separation, when it takes place physically, doesn't always take place psychologically. Had he asked me the same question three, three months ago, I would have given him a different answer, but my separation today is psychological as well as physical. He probably should have been able to determine that just from analyzing the type of talking that I've been doing here tonight. I very carefully avoided having anything negative to say about the black Muslim movement. If he was intelligent, he wouldn't have brought that up. But since he has, I have to answer him. I always represented the black Muslim movement because of its ability to reform the morals of our people. This is the strongest accomplishment that most of the objective uh, critics of it have to admit. The social scientists, the psychologists, the, uh, the uh, criminologists, almost everyone who deals with uh, the vices that destroy the moral fiber of society agree that one of the things that the black Muslim movement has done, it has eliminated these vices. So uh, this was my strongest stick, and I would use it against anyone. But as I said, uh, it was uh, something that Minister Wallace Muhammad told me that made me realize that I had to start trying to get a better understanding of Orthodox Islam. And what he told me not only caused me to be put out, because I, I never did leave the nation of Islam. I was put out. Not only was I put out, but he was put out for telling me what he told me. And six of the uh, brothers, or a couple carloads of brothers from Philadelphia, went to uh, Chicago to see Minister Wallace Muhammad just a couple days ago. And they came back to the city and were put out of the mosque last night. Because he told them the same thing he told me. And it only boils down to uh, 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 one of the uh, young teenage sisters uh, left Detroit and became a secretary in Chicago in 19, I think, 56, and she became pregnant, and we have a strong law in Islam, in the, in the Muslim movement, whereas if anybody, man or woman, has any kind of sexual relations uh, with someone to whom they are not married, automatically uh, they are given time, they are put in isolation, they go to, before our court, they brought before the Muslim body, they are humiliated, they are actually disgraced and put in isolation for from one to five years and this happened to this young sister she was humiliated and sent back to Detroit so a couple a year later one left a teenage sister left Lansing Michigan and went to Chicago and again became one of the personal secretaries there and within a year's time she had become pregnant and she was brought before the Muslim body and humiliated and disgraced and put in isolation and in both of these occasions everyone took it for granted that it must have been some non-Muslim who had who had betrayed her. So, in, uh, by 1957, we had grown so rapidly across the country until it became necessary to hire about eight uh, secretaries in the headquarters in, Chica uh, in Chicago. Uh, there were, all of them were teenagers. Two of them were right here from Philadelphia. Two of the most prominent sisters of this city moved to Chicago uh, thinking that they were going to a place where they would become morally strengthened, morally enlightened, and things of that sort. And uh, how they escaped what happened, I don't know, but from what I understand, they did escape. And they came back to Philadelphia and retained their moral convictions. But in 1959, four of these uh, eight secretaries disappeared. I should say six of them disappeared. Two of them came back to Philadelphia. Uh, four of them disappeared for good. They, they turned up in, in 1960, and all four of them had babies. They were pregnant. 
and they were brought before the Muslim uh, community there in Chicago and were humiliated. They were disgraced. They went through the general procedure, and because they, none of them ever pointed out who the father of their children was, it was taken for granted that it was uh, some non-Muslim. So uh, I knew nothing about it. I, 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 I was suspicious, but my own religion made me spooky. I thought if I really concentrated on the knowledge that was in front of me that Allah would chastise me. I wouldn't even let facts register in my intelligence. But it was when Minister Wallace Muhammad came out of prison in 1963, he pulled me aside and told me uh, who, was the, who was the father of those children. That those, of all of them? Yes. The same man was the father of all six. The same man violated and spoiled all six. And this is a fact. And it was it was when Minister... He was in the appeal for secretaries. Well, he certainly was. <laughs> Keep my secretary away from him. It was it was when it was when Minister Muhammad told me this that I almost was ready for Byberry. I couldn't believe it, but it put me in a position where I could not honestly defend the Black Muslim movement as a moral movement anymore. But rather than rather than say anything about it. I, I uh, kept it to myself until they were afraid me, with me having this knowledge. And uh, it was in uh, when Kennedy was assassinated that they used that as a pretext to get rid of me. And I still kept it to myself. I tried to protect them all the way down the line. But if you read every edition of the paper that they put out, even in the face of my effort to protect them, they have maligned me and slandered me and talked about me like a dog. And there's a lot of the poor ignorant Muslims who aren't really to blame because they don't know what went on. But if they would take time just to ask Minister Wallace, find out why isn't Minister Wallace Muhammad in the Nation of Islam. He was put out with me. And if this brother wants to label me as a hypocrite, he'd have to label everybody else who was put out with me as a hypocrite. And I wouldn't even be talking on this right now, but it's ignorance like this that forces you sometimes to have to expose it. Well, what are you doing in this spring weather? <laughs> Hello, Mr. Bradshaw. I uh, want to say to begin with, uh, one of the most painful things that just happened to, to me when I heard Malcolm X recite those uh, incidents about what happened in Chicago. As you know, I am a Roman Catholic, but I have always admired Malcolm X because, in my opinion, he has done more than most men in our time to bring to the Negro a sense of respect in racial terms for himself. Uh, it would seem to me that it would have been better had he not said the things uh, that he did say. I'm going to quote the Koran. Uh, I'm not a student, though, but I happened to pick this up the other day. Surah 5, where it says, we ordain therein life for life and eye for an eye, nose for a nose and ear for an ear, tooth for a tooth and etc. Equal for equal. But if any one remits the retention, the retraction by way of charity, it is an act of atonement for himself. And if any fail to judge by the light of the Lord, they are the wrongdoers. It seems to me it's in a wider sense, helped by his... Uh, uh, I, I am told by pretty good sources that every effort was being made, every excuse was being sought after to find uh, a justifiable way to do exactly what was done. 
Uh, and, and, and when he said why, he said I keep this thing so long to myself and then tell it now. I, I'm surprised at him uh, for thinking ill of me, for speaking truth. If he had listened to this person uh, malign me and slander me, actually, uh, he would have been able to detect that someone had really poisoned this person. Someone had uh, filled this person's mind with poison to make him think that I was the criminal, that I was a hypocrite. Well, whoever did it was a person who had a full knowledge of what actually had taken place. And it has only been my uh, silence that has created a vacuum that has enabled uh, very skillful uh, people to plant the seed of poison to make it appear to the public that I am wrong and was wrong for having left the Muslim movement. Well, I was silent on it for a long time. And during this silence, I think many people have been led astray and have been misinformed and are right now being misused. So I have no alternative other than to speak it. If they want me to be quiet, then they should keep these little uh, uh, brothers who are ignorant quiet. But from now on, anybody who opens up their mouth on me, I will sting them. And I'll sting them with truth, and I'm not particularly concerned with what the consequences may be. Uh, and so, and in regards to this gentleman who uh, said, why must I teach hate? I don't think any white person in America is justified with classifying anything that black people in this country teach as hate. The black man is being bitten by your dog that white people are sicking on us. Our heads are being battered with clubs that your policemen are putting up beside our heads. Our women and our children are being washed down sewers by white men who will have hoses in their hands toward us. Now, how in the world can you see us being brutalized and victimized day in and day out? And when we speak out against it, out against it you have the nerve enough to say that, uh, uh, that we're teaching some kind of hate. You should be ashamed of yourself. Whether you are, uh, uh, and if you are a Negro, who, uh, who happened to be calling. You are a Negro on the outside, but you're white on the inside because you have more feelings for the white man than you have for your own kind. How in the world could you see your own people uh, being, being, being brutalized as our people are being brutalized? You see the white man in Washington, D.C. right now, every form of political trickery imaginable is being exercised just to keep us from becoming citizens. And you have the audacity to say, I teach hate? No, truth is hate, then you need a whole lot more of it. I'm just telling you the truth. Take it or leave it. Not well, American revival. They imported my blood brother, flesh and blood brother, and put a strip in his hand to make him attack me on national television, national radio, and at no time did I open up my mouth to defend myself. And the same thing that I just stated, I knew it then. But I knew my brother was dumb and didn't know what he was doing. He had no knowledge of it. And they used him in his so I don't intend to keep uh, my mouth shut and let our people remain ignorant so they can continue to be used because they'll find some innocent person either committing murder or some innocent person being murdered because of their innocence. All righty. Uh, uh, Muhammad, uh, I'm Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad. Thank you.
starting about 300 years ago, that we should face the problem. And I think for him making this statement at this late date in the way that he did, I think was very poor, and I've enjoyed him. I think he's a new man, and I feel that uh, he had a lot of possibilities. But for him to attack and solve this problem this way, on the air with uh, no one else, uh, discuss it with him at the time, I think was very poor, and it shows that uh, it's something that we're trying to get away from. And all this uh, fighting that we're doing here, we have to get away from that idea and that way of attacking any problem. And I'd like to know from uh, the gentleman uh, what he intended to do in, in uh, helping uh, the people of the United States in uh, this new way that he Thank you. Uh, yes, but I have to comment again on her on the first part of her statement before I go back to this to her question. Uh, this right here shows you what is really basically wrong in this society, and also on the part of our people in trying to correct. I stated from the start that no one has ever defended, and I don't think anybody in America can, can will deny that uh, anyone has ever defended a movement or represented the movement as I have defended and represented the movement to which I formerly belong. At no time have I attacked it. Now all someone has to do is pick up any newspaper that has been put out uh, by that movement since I left. And you will see, once you know the true reason why I left, then you go back and read the type of slander that they put out, and I think you'll have to agree that it was remarkable that I kept quiet as long as I did. And then you also go back and listen to what this young man said. And I happen to know that the man is ignorant. And he says these things only in his ignorance. But I'll tell the world. If they what, think what, I'm, what young man? This young man who asked the question as to, rather, who attacked me as a hypocrite. Whitman X. Yes, Whitman X. Whitman. Whitman, Whitman yeah. Whitman. <laughs> That's a good name for him. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I don't hold it against him because I know what they're doing. And, I, and, and probably the public doesn't realize what is being taught from the various pulpits in most of the temples uh, where I'm concerned. And I'm willing to take whatever consequences are forthcoming for what I'm saying. Uh, if I'm not going to bite my tongue in talking about what the white man and others have done, what makes someone think I'll bite my tongue now? I don't bite my tongue on anyone. I kept my peace as long as no one got on the air and attacked me. But when somebody starts attacking me on the air or otherwise, you are you are attacking a man who will defend himself if it costs him his life and if it costs you your life. Now, insofar as the new way that the lady asked about, uh, one of the things that our people have got to realize is the problem that we're that's confronting us is not the problem that can be approached by an individual organization or an individual person. It's a human problem, and it's a problem for humanity. And until we uh, take the problem out of this civil rights context and study the uh, various human rights findings of the United Nations and these other international bodies, we'll never be able to place the problem in its proper perspective. When we realize it's a human problem, a problem of humanity, then all human beings on this earth will have to work with us to see that the human rights of the black people in this country are respected and protected as well as the human as the human rights of others are also respected and protected. I would like to address a 
couple of brief observations, dear guest. Uh, first of all, I what is your name? Complete accord with What's your the name? Appraisal of the. You want to tell me your name? Yeah, Bob Lambert. All right, Mr. Lambert. I'm in a complete accord with his appraisal of the severity of the situation that the Afro-American faces in this country. I will concede to him that he is perfectly correct in supposing that there is complete justification for the Negro in this country to feel spontaneously an emotion at least closely akin to hate of the white person categorically. However, I would like to suggest uh, to Malcolm X that there is a grave logical problem involved in some of what he has said, at least in the past, and I would like him to comment on it. And that is the logical problem of over-induction. <clears throat> that is to say, he is committing, I believe, the same grievous error of reason as has been committed typically by many whites, in fact, most whites categorically. That is to say, hating the one who is not guilty for the sins of those with whom he shares color that are guilty. I think that if I were to find myself fighting any fight with someone because I shared his sense of what was right, and if I were in that very fight to be stabbed by the very man with whom I fought for a common principle, I would need necessarily to regard him as a traitor to both our causes. This is what I fear uh, Malcolm X may be running himself into. To say of all whites that they shall share both the guilt and the hate for the perpetrations of admittedly most whites is to say that whites who fight with you because they agree with you are necessarily to be subject to traitorous treatment on your part. This, I think, is a danger. What this, Thank uh, you. Yes, what this gentleman doesn't realize is First, I don't think you'll ever find any uh, Muslim mentioning anything about hate. I have never heard any Negro in this country use the word hate. This uh, obsession with hate is usually on the part of whites. They're so guilty that they think every black person in this country uh, either hates them or is teaching others to hate them. But this is a guilt complex on the part of whites. They're so guilty uh, that they get this impression. Uh, when, whenever he's saying, we also, we don't collectively uh, condemn all white people. We are uh, condemning the deeds, the collective deeds of the people in this country who have victimized our people collectively. No, uh, condemn all white people. We are uh, condemning the deeds, the collective deeds of the people in this country who have victimized our people collectively. No, whatever category we are born in, we're still a collective category. Look at Ralph Bunch as an internationally recognized and respected diplomat. But when he was in Georgia trying to attend the uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People's uh, Convention, he couldn't live in a hotel. He was discriminated. Now, here's a man who, has, who is respected all over the world. But here in America, he's placed in the same category of any other Negro. Uh, there was a congressman from Detroit, the Diggs, was in a house down in, in Mississippi, which was bombed. He's, a, he's in the Congress. Yet he's placed in the same category of all Negroes. His, uh, uh, the fact that they place him in this collective category makes him the potential victim because of the color of his skin. No matter what he attains, no matter what his academic, his intellectual, or professional level is, he still is on the same, in the same category, collective category, and a potential victim as all other uh, Afro-Americans or Negroes in this country. 
Well, just as we are in the same category collectively because of the system, I think you'll find that white people have to realize that they are collectively guilty, even though as individuals they haven't done it, uh, because they happen to belong to that race that is doing it, collectively they're just as responsible as Bunch is a part of this collective crime that's being committed against us collectively. If he can't escape as an individual, I don't see how white people think they can escape as individuals. It's a collective problem. And, and until the problem is solved for all, it hasn't been solved for one. And when you look deeper into it, sir, I think you'll agree that it's the system itself that we call democracy that's absolutely incapable of giving the things to the black people in this country that it gives to white people. Just as the system of a chicken is not capable of producing a duck egg, though both belong to the fowl family. A duck just can't lay a chicken egg, nor can a chicken lay a duck egg, because the system of the chicken isn't so constructed that it will produce a duck egg. Well, just as that can't happen, the system of here in America, the political system, the economic system, is not so constructed that it is capable of producing freedom for the Afro-American. And until you see, show me where the chicken can lay a, a duck egg, you will never convince me that this system that we call democracy can produce the fruits of democracy for the black people in this country. Are you saying at the same time that uh, that the uh, Negro should, uh, you say you cast aside the word hate a few minutes ago, should uh, look with ill favor against all white people? No. Um, you're not saying that we should be cautious. Yeah. Uh, you're not saying that they should look with ill favor no. against all whites. Are, you, never have are you saying that there are uh, that there are no whites in the United States who are friendly to Negro or the Negro cause? Well, uh, the wolf was friendly to Red Riding Hood when she came knocking at the door. And I think the motive is the thing that uh, she had to examine. And you'll find that in... Well, are you saying then that the uh, that uh, no white is friendly with the proper motive? Well, if they are, and even if they are, I think our people are beginning to today to search for the motive. Just these beautiful words that whites uh, shower us with aren't sufficient. You'll find that the average Afro-American... what about actions? ...has become... Well, we study the actions, too, because the, the motive is the thing. Uh, we, we go for good actions. But at the same time, it is uh, imperative today to study the motive behind those good actions, just like uh, President Kennedy. Well, we still get to the point that after you do that, do you always find that the motive is an ill motive? No. Well, any white people who's prop any white person who's properly motivated uh, in trying to help the Afro-American uh, get a solution to this problem, I think that that properly motivated white person will find himself getting a just reward. But if a reward is all he's looking for, then he's not properly motivated. But there are such people. That's my point. It, well, probably they are. My search, but you, you know, know, hasn't... But you haven't found any? I haven't searched hard enough, perhaps. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I'm forced to believe that there are some good white people in the United States. Well, I don't think that they're all uh, ill-motivated. I didn't say that. No, I don't know whether, uh, I, I won't say that we don't have to look far because they're far and few between, but uh, I still haven't been convinced that there aren't some good ones. Well, I never would say that there aren't some good ones, but uh, as a, an Afro-American, I'm only 39 years old. And in 39 years, you haven't found one? In 39 years, uh, it has been difficult for me to look back today 
and find one whose motives I don't suspect. Joe Rainey. Yes, Reverend. I just want to say to you. You're a stranger. Huh? You're a stranger. Well, I've been asleep, but he said something tonight that uh, got... You mean you heard him while you were asleep? Yeah, I got up up there. I was laying asleep between sleep and wake. Laying there by the radio, and he said something, and he was talking about the man, the girl. Now, one thing I want to say to him, if if it is the truth, Malcolm, it is the truth. Only the truth shall make you free. Now, this is one thing that you find among us. They want to do anything, all kind of filth, dirty, low down, and hide behind the door, but they don't want it to come out in the open. That's right, they'll kill you. Whatever the truth is, it is the truth. And it seems to me that every time you start telling some kind of truth, then especially the female, because it seems to me that there's a psychological block among the female that come out and seem like it must be some guilt complex in them that bring these things out as soon as you speak about this with these these are women what have been there now if that is the truth it's the truth and i don't blame people for standing up for the truth but i want to call your attention to just one thing if you will remember when you were here once before about six or eight months before uh, you know you separated and that the article was in the pittsburgh courier and I call your attention to it when you're supposed to be moved from wife. you remember that, Malcolm? I remember. All right. I call your attention. And if you remember the last word I said before I hung up, I said this. I said, look to me like this is the beginning of the end. <laughs> Don't you remember? Oh, yes, brother. I never forget our thing. So I just want to compliment you on telling the truth. Because well, when it comes to the truth, it seems to us that we, our people, want to cover up and hide. If our children do something wrong, we want to say, oh, he's a good boy, but he's wrong. If a child is wrong, they're wrong. If the man got the women out of the way, he got them out of the way. They were wrong. That's about it. Yes. Thank you, Reverend. And I'm glad you reminded me of that uh, incident a few months back. This is true. Uh, many people tried to tell me uh, what was coming. And I think that those who tried to tell me will also admit that I was just as sincere then in trying to defend what I knew, uh, uh, in trying to defend the movement that I represented. Even though they were trying to tell me what was coming, I always defended Mr. Muhammad, and I always defended the black Muslim movement. But I think that the whole world will agree that uh, there some skullduggery took place, and although I have been covering, uh, covering it up, I don't intend to cover it up. As the Reverend said, if it's the truth, tell it. And it is the truth. I didn't say who was the father of those children, but it doesn't have to, uh, one doesn't, all one has to do is find out did, did those, uh, six teenage sisters, uh, actually become, uh, were they molested? And were they debased? And then were they humiliated? Were they disgraced? And every Muslim in this country who is a member of the Muslim movement, right to this day looks down on them because the Muslims don't really realize who it was that actually destroyed the virginity, the chastity, and the reputation of those girls because they stood up and took the blame knowing that the one that was sentencing them out and humiliating them was the one responsible for their condition. And I think those sisters have to be given credit. And until it's told, the, 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 the honor will be going in the wrong direction and the blame will be going in the wrong direction. And this is the thing that preachers in this country have been doing from time immemorial. And until someone stands up and puts a stop to it, it will continue to take place. Joe Rainey. Oh, uh, hello, Mr. Reverend. Uh, 
Yes. I'll make it short. Um, Who is this? My name is Quitman. No, no. One call tonight, Quit. One call. <laughs> I limited everybody to one call in two minutes. One statement, that's it. Joe Rainey. Yeah, that's not fair, Quit. Joe Rainey. Make me a 
Welcome back, and that was uh, New Orleans' own Irma Thomas uh, with the track entitled Ruler of My Heart, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, uh, February the 22nd, uh, 2024, and uh, we're broadcasting from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. And the Pan-African Radio Network uh, can uh, be found uh, at uh, the blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, we're going to uh, continue uh, with our focus on Malcolm X, uh, who uh, just uh, yesterday uh, represented uh, the 59th anniversary of uh, the martyrdom uh, of Malcolm X on February the 21st of 1965, uh, Malcolm X, uh, prior to delivering an address, scheduled address at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City, uh, was uh, gunned down. And, of course, uh, that has been a major historical development. Um, and, of course, uh, it is well remembered uh, in this country and, indeed, uh, around the world. And, of course, uh, Malcolm X uh, was a pivotal figure uh, during the 1950s and 1960s. Even uh, posthumously, uh, he has, of course, uh, remained uh, very much an important historical figure. Uh, he has, of course, uh, had numerous books uh, written about him and his life and his ideas and contributions to the uh, black struggle uh, worldwide. And at the same time, uh, of course, uh, many documentaries, uh, feature film, and other tributes uh, to uh, Malcolm X have uh, been carried out. Right now, we want to listen to another uh, radio broadcast, uh, this one from New York City, on uh, during uh, mid-June of 1964. Malcolm X participated uh, in a panel discussion with Charles uh, Silberman and others uh, on uh, the African-American question. Uh, let's listen uh, to this report. It's like the white, man, the white American can go to Africa. And you have many white Americans, especially in Lagos and Ibadan in Nigeria, as school teachers and in other, uh, in, other, in other professions. You have Afro-Americans over there also. And no one has any difficulty well, adjusting you... to the cultural, uh, to the culture, nor to the climate. Now, wait, wait, wait. You're, making, you're, you're mixing things here a little bit. The people who live uh, in very cosmopolitan surroundings, whether it's in Lagos, because as a matter of fact, you know Ben in Monmouth, uh, he's, he's a, a painter, a Nigerian painter, who, with whom I was friendly when I lived in London. Uh, I think that people in, in cosmopolitan situations, whether it's New York or London or Lagos, are pretty much the same. 
this is quite a different thing from being a part of the culture in the sense of the culture of the people in the street. You would have just as much difficulty going into the Kentucky Hills right here in this country, back in the backwoods. I don't deny that. So, at all. so what, all I'm trying to show you is that you evidently have the impression that most of Africa is woods or jungle, and that there are no cosmopolitan cities there. If you're the type of person who wants to live in the in the in the jungle, you can live in the jungle. If you want to live in a cosmopolitan city, you can live in the city. But you can do the same thing in this country, and you find just as great a variety uh, at a, in different, at just as many levels of culture in, in this country as you find on the African continent. Gentlemen, let me interrupt here for a moment to take care of some business. A couple of telegrams. One, will you please tell what happened to Dr. Shepard, signed E. Miller of Red Bank, New Jersey. I can only tell you this about Dr. Shepard. They were under the impression that he would be released the early part of uh, June on some legal technicality, and it didn't work out that way. I understand the judge has not made a final decision and will not do so until the early part of July. When we get the information, we'll pass it on to you. Now, here's a lady, Helen M. Lawler. Have you no decency? How can you report serious injury to Mr. Kennedy and other persons and then go on into a spiel for silverware? Well, I would just like to say this, uh, uh, Mrs. Lawler, or Miss Lawler. We have special times that we do various things. I, I trust that you wouldn't expect me to dedicate an hour to, an hour of silence to the fact that Mr. Ted Kennedy has been uh, injured in a plane crash. We certainly, uh, at the time of the assassination of um, late President Kennedy, we were off the air with all commercials, I think, for two and a half days. I'm not mistaken. Now, we do have certain ways of running the show. When we get a bulletin, we read the bulletin, and if there has, if there's a station identification according to the FCC that must be given at that particular time, we do it. And if there's a commercial, we do that too. If you feel that I lack decency, this is your privilege to have that opinion of me. Well, that's all for these telegrams. The others are not relevant to our discussion of the morning. We're talking this morning with Charles E. Silverman. I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. I use that illness. The title of the book that Mr. Silverman has written is Crisis in Black and White, and it's published by a random house. And I would just like to say this to our listeners, because we naturally reach a portion of New York listeners as well as covering some 40 states. If you read the review in the New York Times a couple of Sundays ago by Mr. Redding, and it was a bad review. I would suggest to you, before you make a final decision whether the book has merit or not, to read it yourself. Because I've never, in the eight years of broadcasting, had as many people seated around the table in one evening raving about it, a book as much as these men have about crisis in black and white. I don't say that my guests agree with everything that Mr. Silberman has said in the book, but they feel it's an excellent book and that he's done a wonderful job in writing this book. And so I hope that you have a chance of reading it. Malcolm X is with us this morning, P.J. Sidney, and Martin Berger, attorney. I understand you were trying to get in there before to say something, and you just didn't know how to cut it, right? Right. You could do it with a typewriter, but not with a microphone. Well, let I can only speak secondhand uh, here, Malcolm, but there's an awful... Uh, a large volume of literature now suggesting that a great many American Negroes do have a problem when they visit Africa. And 
several ways. One is a certain degree of ambivalence about their relationship with Africa. One uh, one Negro friend uh, said to me, well, when I land and uh, meet somebody uh, whose great-great-great-grandfather uh, sold my great-great-grandfather into slavery, should I uh, thank him or swipe him? Uh, Africa reminds me of what Joseph did in the Bible. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brethren. And that, but, but after being sold into slavery, he became a ruler in that same land, and he forgave his own brothers who sold him. But he never really? forgave Pharaoh who bought him. It's not, it's, not just, it's not just having been sold into slavery. I think part of it is the picture of Africa which Americans uh, have taught uh, for several centuries now, so that Africa, for most Negroes, has been a great source of pain. This is the shame in, in their background. When they think of Africa, they think of the picture in their geography textbook of the naked savage holding a spear. But they're getting away from that now. They're getting away from it, but this creates a problem. Another problem uh, has to do simply with the degree to which the comforts and conveniences of modern life uh, are taken for granted. And when they get to Africa, uh, in the same way as when they get to uh, almost any European country, except uh, perhaps for uh, Britain, the telephones uh, don't work terribly well, the plumbing doesn't work terribly well, uh, the air conditioning doesn't work or it's non-existent. Uh, people's conception of time is different. There are cultures, there are the questions of the conveniences we take for granted which make life different and they become very conscious of these things. And then there are cultural differences. Uh, the question of time, uh, for example. Uh, in Africa and a great many European societies all through the Middle East, uh, time has a totally different, uh, plays a totally different role than it does here. People are an hour late uh, for an appointment, uh, this is simply taken for granted. Uh, this, this bothers them. There, there seem to be, uh, these are, these are the reports that Harold Isaacs in his book, The New World of Negro Americans. I, I don't uh, think any person has ever written in a manner to do more, uh, greater, dis, uh, greater uh, injustice to the relations between Africans and Afro Americans than Isaac. And in his book, it looks like he is skillfully uh, trying to make it appear that it's impossible for the Afro American to go back to the African continent and be accepted by his African brother or fit into or adjust himself to African society. And much of what Isaac points out in his book, uh, I found to be other than true uh, in my visits over there. Mm. Now, I, I met, I, I, I was with the Afro-American mm. colony, let us say, in uh, several of the different African countries. And these same problems that Isaac uh, pointed out, uh, I found them, I found not to be true. The Afro-Americans whom I met were very, very happy. They had fit right into the economic system, into the political system and were adjusting themselves to the entire cultural pattern. And I just can't see how you yourself know of the many whites, the Europeans, who have settled on the African continent. And they haven't had this problem of readjustment. You know, well, these are the people who stayed. 
the people who therefore the ones who stayed are the ones who were able to adjust. Uh, Richard Wright went to Africa with great expectations and uh, he found it a very shattering experience because he, he suddenly became he became conscious as, as TJ said of, of how much of an American he was. I, I'm not Richard Wright's daughter is living in a crowd right now and uh, she was telling me while I was there that the reason she's in Accra was because she felt that uh, the world misunderstood what her father had written about Africa. And she had moved to Accra to try and uh, build a better bridge of understanding or to regain some of what uh, she felt her father lost by this misunderstanding uh, of even Africans uh, concerning that which he read about, uh, what she wrote about his experiences in Africa. And uh, I hope I don't appear dogmatic, but I cannot buy uh, from anyone, uh, the, the idea that there is something about the African continent and African culture that's so repulsive that the Afro-American can adjust themselves yes. into it. I don't know, you injected the word repulsive, and I say, just a minute, I'm not going to let you uh, build up any straw men. Nobody said repulsive. Uh, uh, actually, you're also seeing this as sort of either or. There are quite evidently people who adapt very well, but also there are other people who feel as Wright felt, and I don't think that his daughter is going to change the fact that he felt as he felt at that time. She may feel differently now, and there may be some other people who feel differently. But uh, there is a considerable body of opinion that we are Americans, and I don't really find anything that wrong with being an American. I, 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 the only thing I find uh, uh, difficult is when people deny me the opportunity to be American as fully as I would like to be. So uh, I think that let us not make a fetish of uh, going back someplace. I, I, you know, I don't think that, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm speaking of a physical return or migration to Africa. Uh, in, my, in my travels to Africa, I came away of the opinion that the Afro-American would be better off remaining physically in America. But at the same time, he would have to migrate uh, culturally, psychologically, and philosophically back to Africa to regain some kind of spiritual bond, which in turn would help enhance our political and social and economic position right here in this society. Well, I think that, I think that, that we're not too far apart in the sense that I feel that the American Negro has to uh, get some sense of identity and some sense of pride. You'll never However, just a moment. However, I think that uh, what Charles has proposed is a much more likely way, is likely of attainment on one hand, and also a much more palatable way to most Negroes. And that is, he feels, and I hope I represent you well, I wish you would come in if you don't like what I'm saying, uh, uh, that Negroes have to get some power over their own destiny right in the context of what I insist is their own country. This is my country. I, 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 won't, I won't have it any other way. And he feels, and I certainly share this view, that Negroes have to have, have to acquire some power. Some power, I agree with it. Yes, and, but not this power does not have to be in the framework of any African imagery. See, that's where, that's where you and I are differing on this. No, I, I'm saying that you, gain, you, get, you get your life or your strength from your roots, from your cultural roots. And the thing that makes the, 
black men in America differ, differ from all other minorities in this country or people anywhere is the fact that we have been cut off from our cultural roots. And this, the process that was used to do this was the skillful uh, propaganda that the American educational system created by giving us a negative picture, number one, of Africa, and, uh, and an even more negative picture, number two, of the African people. And as soon as we bought that negative picture of Africa and the African picture, we had a negative image of ourselves. And you will find that as the African nations have emerged and have gotten into a position to change the negative image of Africa and its people from, from negative to positive, that same change has undergone, uh, it has, has uh, developed right here in the mind of the American Negro. We, our people, are becoming more positive more filled with uh, racial confidence, racial pride, and have a tendency to stick together in unity and harmony and go forward. But as long as the image in our mind of Africa was something negative, cannibalistic, and savage, you'll find that most Negroes were ashamed of their color, their features, and everything else that was characteristic of it. So my, I'm sorry, Excuse me, PJ. I think we have to deal with this on, on two levels. One is eradicating the traditional view of Africa as a place of savagery, a place that uh, had no culture, no history. I think this is essential. I think pride in race is uh, important, uh, perhaps crucial, whether as a transition or as a permanent uh, thing, I don't, I don't know. I think on the other side, though, as once this pride in race begins to get established, as you see the African states uh, walking, emerging on the international scene, the question of what specifically the relationship will be between the American Negro and uh, Africa begins to get very complex. How you feel a great deal of pride when uh, Ghana was created from a emerged on the world scene, but how do you feel uh, when Nkrumah begins imprisoning all of his political opponents and uh, <clears throat> passing laws which will, which in effect, convert? Uh, Let's stop again. And he's not imprisoning political opponents, he's imprisoning Africans who have allowed themselves to become agents of what is known as neo-colonialism. And in the West, uh, anytime an African uh, shows any kind of independence of the West, he's classified as a dictator, and when he takes the uh, measures necessary to protect the freedom of the country, they say he's imprisoning political opponents. Are you sure you haven't been brainwashed now? Well, I, you don't see me. If I've been brainwashed, it hasn't been by America. Well, that may be, but do you think that that's the only place that you can be brainwashed? I would rather be brainwashed by my brother than by a stranger. Oh, that very well may be, but let us not discount the possibility that you can be brainwashed uh, even, even by your brother. Uh, I was in, in Ghana, and I've never been to a country where I felt more free, nor, I saw, nor where I saw the people of that country exercising more freedom than in Ghana. I saw none of this dictatorial uh, activity that is projected in the Western press. They wouldn't let you see it. No. Now, now look, look, I'm not, I'm not knocking Ghana. That is not my object. But I do think that it's very naive, and I'm sorry to have to use this word. You can use any words you want. It, it, it's, it, it's very naive to believe that Ghana is all that's good. I, I can understand. For instance, if you said to me that in this transitional period, and this has happened in many countries, that maybe it has to go through a phase of dictatorship 
that maybe in order to get some kind of uh, order, some kind of uh, uh, form, some kind of stability, that it has to go through this. If you say this, then I accept it. But if you are going to whitewash everything that Nkrumah does... Whitewash or blackwash? Either way, whichever way you want to do it, you know. Uh, uh, but if, if you're going to wash it, whichever way, you know, uh, then I think that you are, are brainwashed as much as anybody could be brainwashed from the other no, side. And I don't think, and I don't think the brainwashing looks any better from one side or the other. I'm telling you that when I was, I was only in Ghana for a week. When they showed you certain things. They showed me nothing. I was on, I was in Ghana for a week. They didn't show me anything. They let me go wherever I want, speak to whoever I wanted to speak to. And I found that everyone there felt free to speak his mind. He had, they had all of the freedom of speech that you have in this country. In fact, I made probably some more scabbing speeches there than I, than I have over here. Pro and con. Now, you made scabbing speeches. Let me try to shift the discussion a bit, Malcolm, because I, think, uh, I don't think we want to really get into a debate here as, as to whether Ghana... It's good or bad. Point, the point that I'm making is that the Africans are human beings, and there are going to be uh, African societies that are good, African states which are bad. Let's uh, leave out our individual judgments as to which, uh, which fall into which category. Uh, some of the African states uh, have a very strong French cultural uh, coloration. Some of them have a very strong English uh, cultural coloration, as well as their African background, because uh, several hundred years of French rule or British rule uh, also made some impression. And all I'm all I'm suggesting is that the relation, precisely because American Negroes were so completely separated from their African background. Reconstructing the relationship is going to be very complex, and I don't, uh, I don't quite, I don't quite see how it's uh, how it's going to be done. I'm not saying it, it can't. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm not opposing trying to do it. Was it an accident that it was done? Was it an uh, accident that we were cut off from our? No, first it, it it wasn't an accident. We're not we're not arguing we're not arguing about that. I'm I'm simply. Uh, Arguing that having having been in the United States for several hundred years, having been separated for this time, there is uh, a separation, and that the solution, however important, uh, re-establishing some relationship with Africa may be, uh, this is only one part of the solution. That the more important part, and it's an important part. I'm not. I'm not in any sense derogating it. I'm simply arguing that because the American Negro, for better or for worse, has to live his life in this country, uh, the solution has to be found very much more uh, here. And it's for this, uh, for this reason that I uh, place, well, I have a chapter on Africa and on the need to reestablish uh, some relationship. Uh, the, the more urgent, uh, if you will, or the more important part of, of the solution 
lies in uh, overcoming the sense of powerlessness. The well, sense can you overcome it if you don't know what caused it in the first place? Oh, uh, yes, you can. You can. You, it seems to me you can recover from a disease without necessarily knowing the the, the origins of it. I don't think. I don't think you have to know the origins. Of example it. for me. Uh, it, was it an accident that we were cut off from our culture, and, and was it necessary to cut us off from our culture in order to make us the slaves that we ultimately became? You want to establish blame, no, Malcolm. Not, not blame. We're not interested in blame. But this is what I like about this book, Crisis in Black and White. It points out there are too many facets of our condition today that the average Negro wants to duck. He wants to sidestep. And until he can face up to the real low level that we were brought down to, we won't know what it will take to bring us out of it. The average Negro today wants to make believe that we haven't been, uh, had our neck broken. And he wants to walk around like his neck has been healed when he hasn't yet admitted that it was broken. Gentlemen, let me interrupt here for a moment. We're talking with the author of the book titled Crisis in Black and White, Charles E. Silberman. Malcolm X, P.J. Sidney, and Martin Berger with us this morning, and I think at the time when I interrupted to take care of some business, you wanted to make a point, Charles. I think uh, we really are in closer agreement here than perhaps we've sounded. Uh, let me read just one paragraph from the ultimate source. Uh, what Page 184. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all with them. <laughs> I think this sums up how I feel uh, better than anything else I know, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, here's the way I put it in a book. It is in the United States, in short, and only in the United States, that American Negroes will be able to resolve their problem of identification. To be sure, Negroes must recapture their African past, because denying them a place in history has been one of the means whites have used to keep them down. And they must find some basis on which to relate to Africa, because denying that relationship has been central to Negro self-hatred. But building a bridge to Africa past and Africa present is simply a means of erasing the old stigma of race. It is not a base on which Negroes can erect a new identity. For American Negroes have been formed by the United States, not by Africa. Africa gave them their color, but America gave them their personality and their culture. The central fact in Negro history is slavery. The Negroes must come to grips with it, must learn to accept it, to accept it not as a source of shame, the shame is the white man but as an experience that explains a large part of their present predicament. Only if they understand why they are what they are can Negroes change what they are. Identity is not something that can be found. It must be created. I, I buy that. But what you're admitting here is that the Negro is suffering from cultural colonialism. If I understand you correctly here, when you say uh, Africa gave them their color, but America gave them their personality and their culture. This is what in, in Africa today is referred to as cultural colonialism, that our personality is not the personality that stems from our basic nature, from our likes and dislikes, but it is a personality that has been forced upon us by the conditions under which we live. It's not our personality that we reflect uh, because we are free to do as we, as we please or, or as we like, but it's a personality that stems from slavery. And in uh, Eleanor, some writings of Eleanor Roosevelt that I read somewhere at some time or other, 
she pointed out that whenever a, uh, a person is denied his human rights, he doesn't have the opportunity to, to develop a personality. He, he can't, his, per, his own personality can't come to the fore. And in America, my contention is that the Negro has no personality. He doesn't know his personality until, he's, until he has complete freedom. And then in this uh, uh, atmosphere of complete freedom, he's able to develop uh, from his natural urges, likes and dislikes, a personality that's unique to, to, to him. Yeah, but the only disagreement is that you feel that it has, we have to go back and find this in Africa. And the point which Charles was just reading, and I was very much impressed with it, I, I uh, made an indication to quote this, uh, is that although these things have happened, although our original origin was in Africa, the fact remains that our personalities were made in America. And therefore, whatever identity we find has to be in this context, whether we like it or not. Yeah, personalities like Stephen Fetchett. Well, finding, finding... There must be something between Stephen Fetchett and, and going all the way back to Ghana. Uh, I, 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 take Israel, take the Jews in this country. In this country, since Israel was established, the Jews don't migrate physically from America back to Israel. They stay here in America, but they do migrate culturally. A great they, many of them don't migrate culturally well, to Israel either. Still, uh, a great many of them don't, and they succeed, and they and, they, and they fulfill themselves quite well without migrating, but, even even intellectually. Still, you'll find that the American Jews support Israel. Uh, they migrate culturally, they migrate philosophically, psychologically, and this cultural, philosophical uh, migration of the American Jew back to Israel, though he stays here physically, has helped or enhanced the political and economic position of the Negro, of the Jew in America. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying is that just as the Jew can stay here and still have cultural links with Israel, the 22 million Afro-Americans here in the United States can also remain here, but we'll find that we will have a stronger spiritual force, stronger bond, stronger unity if we forge some kind of cultural... I'm really arguing, Malcolm, you, is that when you use the phrase, we have to forge some kind of bonds, that this is a very complex problem. I agree uh, this is a fine thing to do, but and I agree that the creation of the State of Israel uh, helped uh, Jewish self-confidence enormously in the United States. There was a great sense of pride to see uh, a Jewish state recreated. But the relationship uh, between American Jews and Israel uh, goes back for several thousands of years. There, there is a tradition of identification uh, with Israel as the spiritual homeland that was not destroyed uh, the way as the American Negroes' relationship with Africa this is my point. was no, destroyed. No, my, no, my point. You're making a different point. My, no, my, no, point, my point is that uh, that because the American Negroes' relationship with Africa was destroyed, recreating it is a complex thing. Uh, and all I can tell you is that while the relationship between the American Jew and Israel is extremely important, uh, it's not. Uh, completely a bed of roses either. There are real problems uh, in both directions uh, in, in the relationship uh, which are beginning to emerge. And I can tell you uh, that as a uh, 
very strong, lifelong Zionist, when I went to Israel last summer, I had the kind of experience that E.J. was describing that American Negroes have uh, in Africa. Uh, I was enormously impressed with the country. Uh, I want very much to go back and visit it again. I, I think it's one of the most exciting places on earth. Uh, but I was enormously conscious, more conscious than I had ever been before, of how much I'm an American. Uh, and the reason was uh, simply that the day-to-day -day culture of Israel is essentially the culture of Western Europe. But these uh, disappointments didn't make you think uh, being a Zionist. No, uh, and I'm, I'm not speaking of it in terms of a disappointment. I'm simply saying that I was aware of differences uh, that didn't exist uh, before, uh, because this is this is not an American. But it still I'm gonna, did you still didn't make you think no, no. Well, but but the Afro-Americans are the same way. Well, we uh, realize we're going to have problems, just as you have problems trying to identify with Israel. But uh, we can surmount these problems and still forge uh, spiritual bonds with our African brother. That doesn't mean we have to go back over there. If, if brothers like Sydney want to stay here. And, my, and I want to go back, then we can, I can help him from there, and he can help me from here. I'll send you a care package. Uh, okay. Now, uh, I, I have found, and this, this has been brought up very frequently, and I'm a little surprised, Malcolm, that you bring it up, because other people have made the comparison between uh, Negroes' loss of heritage and the uh, Jews' displacement, so to speak. And I always find this comparison very unfortunate. Because in the worst times of Jewish oppression, they have always had among them some old Jew who could carry the word, who could tell the young people of their history. And by your own words before, we were cut off in a very different kind of way. And therefore, I think we should just drop the illustration of Israel altogether because there's just no comparison. There's just no comparison whatsoever. And I think that whatever identification we're going to make, it is all very well for us to have as a passing piece of knowledge that we did not come from nothing. But beyond that, I think we have to forget it, not become preoccupied with, with any relationship to, to uh, Africa, but rather, but rather to try to make our identification as Americans and as Americans with a particular kind of history. A particular kind like what? Like the history which is very well known, which you know, the history of slavery and all that. You don't, want to go back, you don't want to go back beyond slavery. I want to go, I want to know it academically, but I, I cannot emotionally, this doesn't do very much to me. And why do the people read the history of the Greek Empire, Roman Empire, and these other European... Oh, different people, different people read it for different purposes. Sometimes they read it to instruct them as to the way things have happened. Having the knowledge but, of the past gives you a better understanding of the present. Ah, understanding is one thing, but you're suggesting, I think you put it very clearly, an emotional bond, a spiritual bond. This is quite a different thing from an academic understanding and a, and a profiting from an academic understanding. 
And I think you're mixing these two. No, I uh, think that Malcolm has, is making a very valid point, and I think then he goes too far with it. I think that he is making a valid point that there must be a recreation of the African past in order to indicate not only to the Negro but also to the white the fact that there was a great civilization created in Africa uh, far beyond anything that many of us know about. I think Mr. Silverman has indicated to many of us who have having the slightest idea of the, of, of, of the facts of history, that there are, are areas that are completely blind to us. And I think the Negro should know it, and I think the white should know it. I don't think there's any question about it. However, you're saying something beyond what the quotation Mr. Charles had read you. He said that, to be sure, Negroes must recapture their African past. And I quite agree. I imagine you do agree. But you go beyond that. You say there must be the creation of spiritual moral. Welcome back. And uh, that was a radio uh, panel discussion uh, with Malcolm X and Charles Silberman, author of uh, the book, uh, Crisis in Black and White. And that took place in June um, of 1964 in uh, New York City. That's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Thursday. February the 22nd, uh, 2024, and we've been broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal if you'd like to read the pan-african newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com we're going to close out uh, with the music of Clifford Brown and Max Roach quintet This is from a 1954 album entitled Pure Genius. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.